so we kind of arranged for this this Sunday today. And I was so excited to see the passage uh, that was on the schedule because this passage from Hebrews has been one of my favorite passages over the last few years that has informed how I look at worship and how I look at worshiping God. And so my hope for all of us today is that as we read this passage from Hebrews that is so full of, full of information, if you will, about what God uh, expects in our worship, I hope it will influence all of us how we approach God, um, not just here on Sunday mornings, but how we think about worship and life. We're in a series called Jesus is Better, and it's a study, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and time and again, the author of Hebrews has sought to show how Jesus is superior to everything that came before him. And that this fact should influence our behavior as followers of God. It should make an impact in our internal, in our internal disposition, in our external action. See it time and time again. We're, and we're coming near the end of the book of Hebrews. And we're, confining, we're, we're continuing to find a, a theme that has been uh, pretty consistent throughout. That is, it's an encouragement to the listeners to hold fast to the faith. Time and time again, it keeps getting repeated over and over again. Hold fast to the faith. And a couple weeks ago, starting in chapter 12, uh, Luke talked about how, how life is a long race that requires perseverance. And then last week, find, we found out that God disciplines us. He disciplines those who he loves so that we can finish the race. That is, God is on the side of his people. And even though he does discipline us, he's, he's on our side, he's with us. He actually wants us, do you believe this? He actually wants us to finish the race. We doubt it sometimes, but God actually wants us to finish the race. And so we'll see today uh, that we, we're closer to God. We've come into his presence in such a way, because he, because he loves us, he wants us to finish his, his, his race. We've come into his presence in a way that, that was previously impossible under the old covenant. It was previously impossible. The idea that Jesus, Jesus is better, it's a, it's a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Our relationship with God, the, the relationship that God has established with people, with his people called the covenant, is better in Jesus Christ. And that nearness to God in the new covenant should have an impact on our worship. And in order to show us this, the, the author of Hebrews, he actually, the author of Hebrews brings us into uh, the presence of these two worship services, if you will. These two worship services that, that communicate different truths about who God is. And, and, and they're really used to show us that we're, we're closer to God now than we actually think so much of the time. We're actually closer to God today than, we, than could previously be possible. There's two uh, hurdles that, that, are, that the, the author's going to overcome in this passage. Um, the first is this. We, we tend to think that because we can't be physically close to God, that because we can't see Him, because we can't touch Him, that we can't be near Him. Have you ever felt that way? That you wish you could see God so that you could feel like you knew He was near you. We're going to overcome that hurdle today. The author will show us it's not true. Secondly, uh, in Hebrews, we may, we may acknowledge that we can be near Him, but then what happens? We treat our familiarity with God as an opportunity to ignore Him. The more familiar we get with Him and His people, the less we think we should listen to Him. 
It's like so many of our human relationships when, when we treat those who are closest to us the worst. We undervalue God because he's close to us. We don't like that he demands things of us, do we? we he disciplines us, and, and, and it happens in such a way that it makes our lives feel more difficult. And that's why there's such a call to perseverance in Hebrews. When things get tough, we want to run away from God. But our nearness to God, and, and I should say God's nearness to us, it should increase our worship, not decrease it. The closer we are to God, the more we should worship Him. Put simply, the closer we are to God, the more we should worship Him. Our nearness should improve our service. Our proximity to God should help us to better listen to His Word. So let's take a deeper look at the passage now. We can, we can think about it in two ways. Uh, you, you might hear as, as I speak through this. We can talk about the mountain of His nearness and the service of His nearness. And I only lay that I don't, I don't usually lay out the outline of the sermon before I preach, but I felt compelled to do it because that's what Luke always does. So there you go. The mountain of his nearness and the service of his nearness. And, and conveniently, the, the author informs us of, a, of a, really what it is. is he's, he's telling us about a present reality, who you are today in Jesus, and what you should do about it. Don't you wish every Bible passage was that simple? <laughs> who you are today in Jesus and what you should do about it. Let's start by looking at this present reality. Um, I want to link, first let's link what we're reading today to the previous verses, okay? So, so the author of Hebrews has just encouraged us that we should not be like Esau. Um, which, if you've ever read the story of Esau, it's almost a self-evident truth that you don't want to be like Esau. However, uh, there's something more to it than that. Esau gave up his entire birthright for what? For a single meal. He gave up his entire inheritance because there was food right in front of him. He had the promise of a future blessing, but because he was very hungry, he gave up that future blessing for a present reward. And that's the very thing that the author of Hebrews is encouraging the hearers not to do. Okay, and so in order to exhibit this, he brings us into another very familiar scene for a Jewish audience, and that's God's appearance at Mount Sinai. And even though the passage doesn't specifically mention Mount Sinai, it's very clear that that's where we are. That's what the author is talking about. Okay, so we can read about these, uh, it, these, these are long passages in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, and we don't have time to read all of those passages. Uh, it would be very easy to just stop there and preach more sermons about what's happening in Exodus and what's happening in Deuteronomy. So I, I want to try to summarize it quickly. Um, it's a familiar, these are familiar passages because this is where God gave his people the Ten Commandments. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go back for a minute uh, into the Old Testament and, and into Exodus. Um, what do we have here? We have God's people who have been rescued from slavery. Okay? We're familiar with the story. They've been in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. And what does God do? God sends Moses to, to really represent him before Pharaoh so that he can rescue his people. And he exhibits his mighty hand and his power and his judgment against the Egyptians. And then Moses led God's people out of Egypt and toward the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. And then he tells them that he's going to bring them to a worship service. At that same mountain where God had originally appeared to Moses in the burning bush. 
And at this, at this worship service, God is going to make a covenant or establish a relationship with his people. He's going to confirm his relationship with his people so that why? So that they would always follow him. That's what he wants to do. He wants to reveal himself to them more at the mountain so that they would follow him. They would know him better. They would grow closer to the one who rescued them. That they should learn to revere him. That they should learn to honor him as holy. And, and, and then Moses tells people they have to make it. God tells uh, Moses to tell the people to make preparation for this worship service. It's a very important worship service. They spent three days preparing for a worship service. Three days. Can you imagine if Kevin texted you on a Thursday and said, let's prepare our hearts for worship? And then you started hearing the piano playing for the next three days while you prepared your hearts for worship. That's what, that's what Moses gave to the people here. He said, prepare. God, God said, we're going to prepare for this worship service for three whole days. Okay? And during this worship service, God sets limits around the mountain where he's going to appear so that they wouldn't approach the mountain too closely. And this is not just, it's not just, it's not just something that God acknowledges, but the people themselves acknowledge that they need those limits. Because when they see what's when they see that appearance on the mountain, they're so terrified that they were they were terrified to the very core of their being, and it was so spectacular that, that they acknowledged they needed the limits there. They don't want to approach the mountain either. And uh, let me read a couple verses here from Exodus. Now, when all the people, this is Exodus twenty verse eighteen, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning. And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And then later on in Exodus 24, 17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. A few years back, I was hiking in my home state of Colorado, and there's a, there's a, there's a mountain called Mount Massive. It's one of the, it's one of the peaks in Colorado. It's over 14,000 feet. And my friend and my mother and I, we were climbing this mountain, we were backpacking, we decided we were gonna climb up to the top of this mountain. It was gonna take, it was gonna be a two day trip. And on day one, we started to near the tree line, uh, which is typically about 11,000 feet. We started near the tree line where we were gonna camp right below the tree line on this mountain. What happened when we started get to, getting to the top, as happens so often, if you've ever done this before, hiked to the top of the mountain, is the, the rain started to pour in. We've been used to this. The rain comes in, okay. But as we near the top of the tree line, the rain came stronger and stronger and stronger. And I had never experienced this before. The rain came so strong that the lightning was striking. And I've seen lightning strike. But when you see lightning strike and hear the thunder at the exact same time, it is terrifying. When we were hiking to the top of the mountain, and we could visit, and, and, and I feel like I look back at this, and I, did I really see what I saw? We saw the lightning striking the trees around us. And we turned around and started running back down the mountain. <laughs> and we were laughing out of sheer terror because there was nothing, and I've never been so scared in my life of just lightning and thunder and rain. And that was nothing compared to what they saw on the mountain. The Israelites were not laughing. They were terrified. 
And not only did they see these terrifying things, lightning and thunder and fire and smoke and doom, the sound of the trumpet came mixed with the thunder so that even Moses was afraid. And poor Moses had to go up to the middle of it. And it wasn't just because of the storm that Moses was afraid. It was because he had a real sense, if you read in Deuteronomy 9, of, of, of God's holiness and his perfection. And he got a sense of, of God's incompatibility with sin and with sinful people. And it terrified him to go into God's presence. All, the, all their senses were engaged here at the mountain, and they were terrified. And, and it was communicating something to them. God was communicating to his people a message of holiness. But it was also a message of fear. That God was unapproachable. God's unapproachable. Well, let's move on to the second part of this section. We'll, we'll come back to that idea. Let's move on to the second part of this section in Hebrews. The dominant, the dominant verbs, if you read through this, this passage in Hebrews, are, are, are you, have, you have not come to where? To Mount Sinai. But there's alternative. You have come where? To Mount Zion. This verb, you have come, you have not come. The author of Hebrews only uses this verb in one specific way, to talk about how God's people approach him. Talk about how God's people approach him. So it's a special kind of approach. It's not just like walking up to your friend or someone that you know very well. It's a special kind of approach that we have to God. We, we come to God differently than we come to other people. And in one of the worship, worship services that the author of Hebrews describes, that approach involves fear and separation from God. But the other worship service, the dominant message is what? It's, it's community. It's nearness to God. And this is, this is the idea, if you, that you have not, we have not, brothers and sisters, come to Mount Sinai. We've come to a different mountain. It's Mount Zion. So then why do we so often want to run away from God if we're not standing at Mount Sinai? But you have come to Mount Zion. What is Zion? Zion is, you know, you know, physical, Zion was actually a physical place um, that, that Jews thought of in the Old Testament. It was Jerusalem. You can see pictures of Jerusalem. You'll see that if you, if you, even if you go online, you can see the picture. I, I've never been to Jerusalem, but you can see it's on a hill. And there's these two ridges, and, and, and the temple was in one place, and the, and the palace was in front of the temple. And that's really, that was a physical place, Mount Zion. That's really not what we're talking about here, is it? Not the physical city of David. Because Zion came to represent more than just, the, more than just uh, David's throne in the Old Testament. It, it came to represent the entire kingdom of God as established by his Messiah. Psalm 6, as for me, I have set my king on where? On Zion, on my holy hill. This is what God said, set his king. In, in Isaiah 14, 32, the Lord has founded Zion, and in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. Here's the funny thing about Mount Zion in the Old Testament, though, because we think, we see it in Hebrews as fundamentally different, don't we, than Mount Sinai. 
Fundamentally different. Mount Zion, totally different from Mount Sinai. And yet, it is no less the mountain of God's holiness. Listen to Psalm 50. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Did the author, did the, did the psalmist make a mistake here? He said he's, he's talking about Mount Zion. Why use all the doom and gloom language? If you're, if you're talking about this horrible mountain of fear and judgment, why would you talk about Mount Zion? It's, it's the same Mount Zion that writers in the New Testament came to equate with Christ and his coming kingdom. Same Zion. And the author of Hebrews in our passage upholds it as the ideal meeting place for God and his people. You read in Psalm that it's the same place of God's holiness. And if God is the same at Mount Zion as he was at Mount Sinai, same God, we all say it. I mean, we encourage ourselves with it. God never changes, right? Don't, isn't that an encouragement to you? God never changes. So it's the same God at Mount Zion, at Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. Well, how could that possibly be encouraging to us if Mount Zion is the mountain of doom? Do you ever think of it that way? I certainly don't. Otherwise, it wouldn't be encouraging. Why is it, why is it encouraging this? What, what has changed? Why is it encouraging? You know, God has not changed. He has changed you. He's changed me. What has changed is our relationship with him so that now we can come to the mountain of his holiness and we see it entirely differently. It's the city of the living God, the author says in verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Let's, let's look at all these things real quick that have changed at Mount Zion. I'm gonna try to go through them quickly. First, the author says, we come to the city of the living God. It's the city, it's not the wilderness. Where did God's people worship him at Mount Zion? It was the wilderness, remember, it was before they got to the place of the, of the promise. It was out in the middle of nowhere, in the desert, where there was no food and no water and no civilization. What's the, some of you have probably camped and, and backpacked and those kind of things. And what, you probably don't say it, but what's the best thing about camping and backpacking? It's getting home and taking a shower. Because <laughs> you smell. It's civilization. And it's nice to be out in the wilderness. And it's, it's fun, we do it for recreation, but, but come on. You can't stand your own stench after a few days, if we're honest. You wanna be back to civilization, and that's what Zion is. It's the city of the living God. And, and if you've ever seen physical Zion, you, you'd find that it's not, it's not a place, it's actually, I mean, look at some pictures online. It's not actually, doesn't look like that great of a place, let's be honest. It's not the most perfect place in the world, even if it is a beautiful place. It's a hill in the, the middle of what would seem to be nowhere back then. 
But we haven't come to that physical place. We've come to what the author says is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not a physical place on earth. God has, God has, God has brought us into heaven already, as it were, just by bringing us into his presence. What else? We're called the firstborn. We've come to the assembly or the church of the firstborn. This is the, this is the title that God gave to the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. But of course, it applies more perfectly to who? To Jesus. In Hebrews 1.6, Jesus is called the firstborn. And through our relationship with him, we too have become firstborn heirs. We receive the rights of the firstborn along with Jesus. Instead of Esau, who gave up his firstborn rights, we receive Jesus himself, the firstborn. Did you ever consider that? That because Jesus is the firstborn, and you, through faith in him, are a member of what the author of Hebrews calls the church of the firstborn, that you get all the privileges that Jesus has before the Father. So we're the church of the firstborn. This should be repeated. We still come to God as the judge of all. It says here in this passage, we've come to God, the judge of all. But we don't stand before him as a judge who condemns us because we've broken his Ten Commandments, his law. We no longer stand before him like that. We come before him as the righteous made perfect through Jesus. That is this. That you are condemned standing before God, the judge, and he declares you innocent. So there's no more terror before that kind of judge if before that judge you are declared innocent. And it's not just us. It's the church of God throughout human history. We've come with the, with who? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. With the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's all the church throughout human history. Not only that, um, I, I skipped over the, the festal gathering of angels. How, I mean, how many times in the Bible do you read about angels and it's not a completely terrifying experience for the people who know what's going on? Why? You, you can read about armies of angels. I mean, the mountain is terrifying. Picture an invisible army of angels with swords. If you know it's there, also very terrifying. And God, and God says, we're worshiping with them now. This is no longer the host of heaven set out against you and against me. We're worshiping along with them. Worshiping with the angels as we, we sang this morning in holy, holy, holy. All the saints adored the casting down like, uh, uh, I'm skipping verses here. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee. <clears throat> you can read in Isaiah 6 about the, the seraphim that fly around God's throne covering their face and their feet. Even they have a sense of his holiness. And Isaiah can't stand to be in the presence of God in Isaiah 6. And so he needs the, the coal touched to his lips to atone for his sins. But now we're worshiping with those same angels. Alongside them. Why? It's because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Because what used to separate us from God, what used to be our enemy, 
He is now our friend. He's the mediator of a a better covenant. Instead of Moses, who is the mediator of the old covenant, Moses went up to God alone, but Jesus brings us near. He he brings us near because his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We won't spend too much time talking about it, but we're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his his brother because he's jealous that God accepted Abel's offering, and so Cain, his brother, kills him. And God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That's the word that Abel's blood speaks. It's a a cry for justice. For Cain, it was the cry of judgment. That Abel's blood was saying, give me justice. Judge the one who has killed me. But what's the, what's the word that Jesus' blood speaks, if it's better than Abel's? In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, just a few chapters ago, the author speaks of Jesus' blood in this way. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify from the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. That is this, that Jesus' blood speaks peace for you and for me. Not judgment. Jesus' blood does not cry out, Condemn them. Jesus' blood cries out. Save them. That we now have peace with God because of his blood. We have peace with God because of his blood. There's a a hymn that Isaac Watts wrote that we don't sing. Isaac Watts, like so many songwriters who is very prolific, uh, wrote some bangers and then he, he also wrote some that were like, okay, we don't need to sing that one. This might fall into the second category, but uh, this, is a, this is a great verse from his hymn anyway. Blood, written, written about this passage. Blood has a voice to pierce the skies. Revenge, the blood of Abel cries. But the dear stream, when Christ was slain, speaks peace as loud from every vein. Brothers and sisters, there are many, many things that make us feel far away from God. And I don't have to name them all right now. There are many, many things that will make you feel very far away from God. But listen to me. This is what the passage is saying to us right now. That as close as those terrors are, God is closer in Christ. As real as those pains feel to us right now, God is closer to us in Christ. And as much truth as God communicated about himself at Mount Zion, what he communicates us to, to us at Mount Zion is that he is no longer your enemy, but he's now your friend. Because Jesus' blood has covered our sins. Let's move on a little bit from there. This second section won't take nearly as long as the first, so 
story. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Based on these things, based on the fact that you've come to a better worship service, what, is, what should we do? That's what we want to know. We want to know what to do, don't we? Well, this is what we should do, he says. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Don't be like Esau, if you will. Because since, since we've been brought near, we can have a proper response. Those who heard God on the mountain did not escape. They did not respond the right way. They rejected the same God who appeared to them on the mountain. They were judged. They were not able to enter the promised land. But instead, what? We're to see it, to listen to it. And we've spent so much time talking about this perseverance over the last few weeks. In fact, the entire time, maybe, that, that Luke has been preaching through Hebrews. We might be inclined to say, well, well, that goes without saying at this point, right? We've been brought near, therefore, we should not refuse the one who's speaking. And it's as if the author of Hebrews saying, ah, it, it, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Why? Because they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They wanted to return to Egypt. This is why the, the heavenly outlook can help us very much when we see what's coming. We read at the beginning of chapter 12 that, that Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. I mean, how often on this long journey that we're on can you see the end? How often on any long journey do you see the end? If it's a place that you've never been, we persevere through faith. You never see the end of where you're going if you've never been there. We can't see what God has in store for us. But you keep going because God is near you. And speaking from the book of Haggai, then the author of Hebrews continues. And he kind of shakes things up a bit. Scares us once again. And he, and he quotes a passage from the book of Haggai. At this time, at that time, God's, uh, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth and the heavens. And it sort of shocks us a little bit. It feels like God's trying to, to scare us. I mean, it is, is the author of Hebrew trying to scare us into belief? Do those tactics actually work? If someone just holds over your head the threat of hell, does it get you closer to Jesus? It doesn't work for me. The threat of hell makes me want to run away. Why do I keep bringing these kind of things up? Because for, for us, it shocks us awake, doesn't it? So that you cling closer to Christ. It shocks you awake so that you cling closer to Christ, who is our refuge. The warnings in Hebrews constantly remind us that there's a, there's a cycle in the Christian life that just always brings us back to repentance and faith. That in your Christian life, as you know, as you may know today, you may be in a valley today, you may lack faith today. And God says, keep listening to me. Wake up. Because I'm with you. In Christ, we get to hear God speak clearly when previously we couldn't speak, we couldn't hear God speaking clearly. And by way of application, I, 
I will say it this way. Why do we preach week in and week out? Why do we come to church to listen to a sermon every single week? How many times, if you've been in church before, have you heard a, a preacher say, God is near? How many times have you heard a preacher say, Jesus died for you? And why are you listening today? Because we forget. So he says, don't refuse the one who's speaking just because you're familiar with him. Why do we keep singing the same songs every week? If I ask Kevin, and I know we've talked about this before, anyone who has loved worship, how often are you up here leading worship, reading these songs, not even paying attention to what you're saying? Because you don't even, you, you're not really sure if he's going to call out a key change randomly. It's hard to pay attention to what you're saying. So you hope next week, okay, I won't be leading, I'll be listening. Or as we're singing the song over and over again, sometimes I'm thinking about the chords, and then sometimes, sometimes, I'm reminded that God is with me. And so we keep repeating it over and over again. Keep repeating it over and over again. Let me move a little bit more quickly so that we can close here. Because there's a goal that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to, and that is this. It's, it's worship. Worship is the goal. That's really it. God, God is trying to impact our worship by showing us how much closer we have been brought to him now. Where once you were on the outside of this smoldering, smoking storm, and he picked you up and dropped you on the, in, on the inside of it, and now it's peaceful. And now it's peaceful. God does not change, but his, his nature, it, it elicits a different response from different people, doesn't it? Not everyone responds in worship. Not everyone responds in worship. How often have you as a Christian been accused of being judgmental by those who are not believers? Maybe you're an unbeliever here today and you think to yourself, Christians are very judgmental. Maybe Christians oftentimes are very judgmental. But maybe also, something that happens is that you're just sitting there loving Jesus. And when people look at you, they see smoke and fire and a mountain of doom. Because you're inside the cloud. And so they think, God is judgmental. And from the inside of the cloud, you're looking out going, I didn't. You see, this is how people approach God, though. It's the only two ways to approach Him. You either see Him in smoking doom and gloom because he is the judge against all sin, or you see him as someone who has brought you inside the cloud, who has taken away your sin. But this doesn't just exist outside the church. We do this to one another. We criticize one another for how we worship. We hear, I mean, you've heard churches criticize other churches. Listen to any Christian podcast and see if you can make it five episodes without hearing someone criticize someone else's church for how they worship. And God says something about how we ought to worship. And we should think about this. He doesn't give you, he doesn't prescribe how the lights ought to be. He doesn't prescribe what the music ought to sound like or what key the song should be in. Or how long, thankfully, the sermon should go. <laughs> but he says, worship in this way. With gratitude. Thanksgiving. With reverence. With awe. 
Brothers and sisters, regardless of the song that you are singing, if you come to church, and, and, or if you're worshiping God even in your personal life, with thanksgiving and reverence and awe, you're very close to the presence of God. Not, I'm not saying that the words that we say don't matter. But, but what I'm saying is that so many of the things that we talk about when we talk about worship are peripheral to what God is trying to get out of us, a response that he wants from us. We can sing very, very good songs, and if you sing it with a heart that is ungrateful and ceases to revere him and is not in awe of him, God does not accept your worship. He doesn't accept my worship. If I say good words from a heart of ingratitude. That's why the author of Hebrews keeps reminding us. You've been brought near to me, not because of the words that you say, not even because of your own good intentions. God accepts your worship because of Jesus' blood. That's what brings tears to your eyes when you're singing. It's not because you're singing well. It's because of Jesus' blood. That's the appropriate response of continually listening to God. We have stood close to the fire. Stood close to the fire that is God. And Jesus has surrounded us with his fire-retarded suit so that we cannot be touched. So that, this is as Charles Spurgeon wrote, and I'll close with this, every hymn that comes up from saints made perfect is but an echo of almighty love. They love him because he first loved them. They are first receivers, and then, like pipes that are well filled from the fountainhead, they pour out their contents. First we receive grace, and then we return service. Holy service is a gift from beginning to end. Amen. Let's pray together. Great God of heaven, we rejoice in you today.